If you have a Bible with you, you can open to Colossians chapter 2. We'll look at verses 6 and 7 this morning. As I mentioned uh, in this week's email newsletter, we're taking a break from Matthew's Gospel uh, again so soon to observe Reformation Sunday. And we're looking at this little bit of Paul's letter to the Colossians uh, because it really communicates something that's at the heart of the Reformation, which hopefully uh, means then it'll be at the heart of a Reformation church, the heart of Reformation preaching. And that, uh, that something is this, the absolute centrality of Jesus for our life with God. The centrality of Jesus for our life with God. Christianity is about Jesus. It's about who he is. It's about what he has done. It's about what he's doing, what he has promised to do, and how he shares his own life with God with us. That's what Christianity is about. Various important themes of the Reformation are tied together in that idea of the centrality of Jesus for our life with God. Uh, Without meaning to speak evil of any true brothers or sisters in the faith, it is a matter of historical record that in the several centuries leading up to the 1500s, which is when the Protestant Reformation happened, uh, the leadership of the Roman Catholic Church had uh, corrupted and distorted and lost much of the gospel of Jesus Christ through various official teachings and traditions. Uh, uh, They've even gone so far as to officially condemn glorious doctrines that are clearly taught in the scriptures. And this has had the overall effect of diverting the attention of the church, the bride, away from Jesus, away from the bridegroom, uh, diverting the lives of Christians away from their relationship with Christ. So the Reformation was and is uh, an, an important attempt to recover the gospel of Jesus Christ, to, to proclaim the gospel, to hold fast to the centrality of Jesus for our life with God as that is taught in the scriptures. A course correction was needed, desperately. And it resulted in new ways of formulating uh, really essential aspects of the Christian faith. So, for example... You get these five solas that are printed there down below the scripture reading, which we'll get to in just a minute, I promise. Uh, I'll run through them briefly because they are kind of themes that we're going to talk about as we uh, talk about this particular passage from Colossians. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, right? This is the, the only authority that we have for faith and life as opposed to the traditions and teachings of, of men, even the traditions and teachings of the church. Scripture alone is our authority for life with God. Solus Christus, all these Latin words meaning uh, Christ alone. He is our only Savior and our only mediator, and it's only because of his obedience and his sacrifice that we can live with God. Sola fide, faith alone. Uh, it's not by good works. It's, it's only by trust in Christ, in who he is, what he's done for us, and the imputation of his righteousness comes through faith alone, not faith plus anything else. Sola gratia, grace alone. We have this relationship with God as a gift of his amazing grace from start to finish. Absolutely, 100%, entirely a gift of his grace. And therefore, soli deo gloria, glory to God alone, because we cannot boast. There's no glory coming to us in this relationship. This is uh, all thanks and praise be to God for who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. So it's not just that the church needed this course correction at one point in history, And now that we've sort of gotten it, hey, we're all set. 
We are constantly in need of this course correction, constantly. In our own lives, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to set our minds on Jesus for our life with God, because that's what Christianity is about. Uh, This passage from uh, Colossians 2 is very simply just about the centrality of Jesus for our life with God. So let's talk about it. Let's pray first, then we'll read the scripture. Father, we need the revelation of your word. Without it, we are lost, and we thank you that you've given it to us. We also need your Spirit's help to receive your word. And so we pray that your Spirit would use this word now to shape our lives in relationship with you through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So Paul's writing the Colossians. He didn't plant the church there. A fellow named Epaphras had taught the Colossians about Jesus. He had planted the church there. And he's actually with Paul, I think, at this point, uh, when Paul's writing his letter to the Colossians. But these were the early days of the church in the Roman Empire. In this one city called Colossae in particular, there's this church. Uh, it's, it's the first generation of new believers. The first generation of new converts to the Christian faith in this church here. So, so this congregation had started and grown primarily through adult conversions. That's really the only way the church grew <laughs> at the very beginning, that first generation. Primarily through adult conversions since the church hadn't been around long enough to grow through the upbringing of new children, new generations of believers in the church. Right? And I mention this because uh, I think it's important for understanding our passage. A church like this one in Colossae really would have understood the dramatic meaning of verse 6. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. So these Christians, they were quite aware of a time before they had received Christ Jesus the Lord. These Christians were aware of a time before they had known Jesus. They knew what sort of drastic conversion had taken place when they first received Christ Jesus the Lord. As uh, many adult converts have that drastic conversion experience, they had that drastic conversion experience. I received Christ when I was 18, having previously been uh, quite hostile toward Christ and his people, the church. My conversion was quite obviously a night and day thing when I stopped disbelieving and started trusting in Christ. When I set aside my enmity and took up friendship with Jesus. When I stopped stubbornly refusing to confess my sins to God and now began to go to him for mercy, for the forgiveness of sins, for eternal life. When I gave up my autonomy and I submitted to his word and his judgment, things that had never happened before in my life. When I gave up my own righteousness and self-reliance and rested in his grace instead. So when you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, it's like you die to the old life that is apart from God. And you come alive to an entirely new life, a life that is absolutely centered on Jesus at every point. At the heart of this conversion, this reception of Jesus It's faith. That's the change that happens in us. Faith. 
believing, trusting, resting in who Christ is and in God's love for you in him. So before you receive Jesus, your life is fundamentally characterized by unbelief. That's all there is, is unbelief, distrust, suspicion of God. That's at the root of all sin, every sin. You see it with the first sin in the garden. And you see it with every sin in your life. Every sin can be traced back to this root of unbelief. Sinners don't believe that God is good. Sinners don't trust in his generosity and his grace. Sinners don't entrust themselves to his love and his care. Sinners believe instead that God is oppressive, uh, arbitrary, capricious, fickle, cruel, absent. That unbelief is at the heart of what is wrong with us. So faith is at the heart of the Christian conversion. That's why we are called believers The big change that now defines us is that we actually believe what God has said. We believe what he has revealed about himself. So when you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, you enter into a new relationship with God by faith, by trusting that he is good, that he is gracious, that he is loving. You come to believe that love isn't just what God does, it's actually who God is. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God of eternal and perpetual love. You come to believe and rest in God's love for you because this is what Jesus reveals to you. So you stop rejecting and begin to accept that he is Christ Jesus the Lord. He's Christ. He's the Spirit-anointed Son of the Father, the Messiah that God promised to restore our life with him. He's Jesus, whose name means God is salvation. The Son of God himself come in the flesh, uniting our humanity to himself so that he could deliver us from our sin, from our separation from God, by carrying us through his own life and death and resurrection. Christ Jesus, the Lord, he's the Lord. He's unlike any other Lord. The Lord who laid down his life for his people, whose particular lordship, determines all our reality, this lordship of sacrificial love. So this reception, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, this reception of Christ Jesus the Lord happens for the first time when you believe, when you first believe, when you first entrust yourself to God in Christ. And this is exactly how you proceed throughout the rest of your Christian life. As you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. That little word, as... Uh, is pretty significant. It really means uh, just as, or in like manner, or in the same way, in the same way that you received Christ. So continue to walk in him, live in him. You received him by faith, so always walk in him by faith. It's an imperative. It's a command. It's the kind of command we find so frequently in the scriptures. Believe. Continue in faith. Hold fast to what you've believed. Hold fast to Christ. You first received Jesus when you believed the gospel that was taught to you from the Holy Scriptures. That is the good news that God has loved you and he's given his son Jesus for your life with him. All your growth as a Christian is a deepening in that faith. 
Walking is a metaphor for the believer's life with God in this world, a metaphor for the believer's pilgrimage, which maybe is another metaphor, (laughs) uh, pilgrimage, really, into the glory of God's presence. And Paul is saying that the way you walk, the way you live, the way you make progress as a Christian, the way you live with God, is identical to the way you initially came into a new relationship with him. It's the same. Paul is saying believing the gospel is not just for the beginning of the Christian life. Believing the gospel is the way of living every moment of life with God in Christ. Because what is most deeply wrong with us, the root of all our sin, even as Christians, is still unbelief. We still have these instincts that God is not to be trusted, that I've got to find out what the best decisions are to make with my... I've got to take matters into my own hands. I've got to build some kind of credit with God through how I live. I feel okay about my relationship with God if I'm doing the right thing. And we go about life as if we believed that God wasn't there or that he wasn't good or that he hadn't provided everything we needed or he hadn't promised to provide everything we need. We've got the same thing wrong with us that defines the whole life of unbelieving sinners. It's our default, and we, ref- we revert to it automatically, instinctively. Unbelief. And Paul says in Romans 14, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. If you want to address sin, you've got to address the problem of our unbelief. So just as unbelieving sinners need to hear the gospel and trust in Christ. Believers have a constant need to hear the gospel and trust in Christ, to walk in Christ in the same way in which we first received him, and that is by faith. So this is a crucial prayer for us that we find in the gospels. We believe, Lord, help our unbelief. Walking in the same way that you received Christ means this, means verse 7, being, being, Continually rooted and built up in him and established in the faith just as you were taught. So you were taught the gospel from the scriptures. In fact, Jesus says uh, all the scriptures are good news about him. He says it in Luke 24, which is why we teach from all the scriptures the good news about Jesus for our faith. This alone is the authority and the foundation for your trust in God. Sola Scriptura. You weren't just rooted once in him at the beginning of your Christian life. The whole of your life is about sending down deeper roots in Jesus, about finding him as the fountain and the source of all your life with God. Jesus, uh, he isn't just a springboard for a better life. He's the foundation for building every aspect of your whole life. You don't graduate from Jesus. You don't move on from believing in Jesus to bigger and more difficult things in life. I've been in plenty of churches that treat the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's the thing you need to know in order to become a Christian. But for those of us who are growing in our walks, you need something more, something else. And what you hear from that pulpit is law. It's driven by appeals to pride and guilt and fear. Talking about Jesus isn't enough to get Christians to do more things and to do better. 
So they, they hardly even talk about Jesus regularly. They just talk about good things that we should all be doing in ways that make those good things abstracted from relationship with Jesus. And it's hard for people sitting in those pews to recognize that their eyes have actually been taken off of Jesus, off of the bridegroom. We can hear motivational sermons, sermons that are actually motivational, sermons that actually move us, that boil down to this message. You've got to try harder. You've got to do better. And we can't recognize how that's fundamentally a different message from the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that says, it is finished. I've been in seminary classes where the professor uh, told me, now listen, if you preach the gospel all the time, it'll get boring real quick. And then he proceeds to teach the class how to preach a moralistic sermon that doesn't even mention the name of Christ once. A sermon that just uh, could, have, could have just as well been preached by a Jew or a Muslim or a Mormon who has some kind of similar idea of what it means to live well or obey God. And if a Jew or a Muslim or a Mormon could preach that same message, then it's not a Christian message. And you don't need to be a Christian to do those things. And Christianity offers nothing unique, nothing necessary to be able to do those things. Might as well not be a Christian after all if we're just aiming at doing the same things other religious people are doing. Over the years, we've heard people say, uh, as they've left our church painfully, you talk about Jesus a lot but we're not hearing anything new and we want to hear about what we're supposed to do. The Christian life is never, Jesus is a good start, yes. But now I really need to do X, Y, Z. The Christian life is Christ's own life with God that you are participating in by faith through your union with him in the spirit. It's Christ's life with God. That's what Christianity is. It's the very life of Jesus Christ alive in you, making you alive to God. That's the whole point of Christianity. With Christ alone, solus Christus, at its center, it's about the incarnate Son's relationship with the Father and then the gift of our participation in that life through the Spirit. This is all a gift of God's grace alone, to be received by faith alone from first to last. The entire message of Christianity is one of good news of God's grace to us in Jesus Christ. Good news. And this is why we're always talking about the gospel in ways that are meant to evoke your faith, your response of resting and trusting and relief and rejoicing and gratitude, the kinds of responses that come to things like good news. This is why the confession of faith is an important and constant element of our liturgy. When we hear the word of Christ, we believe it. Faith is our first response that really encompasses all our response to the word. The proper response of faith to Jesus, to the gospel, here in our passage, is a bubbling forth of uncontainable gratitude 
says in verse 7, abounding in thanksgiving. Right? So this, is, this word abounding, you know, it's like pouring excessive amounts of wine into your cup until it just overflows. Gratitude is a response to a gift. That's what gratitude is. It's a response to a gift. Abundant gratitude like this is a response to an overwhelmingly gracious gift. Have you felt that kind of gratitude in your life with God? Preaching the law doesn't produce that kind of gratitude. Preaching your responsibilities, your duties, your moral and ethical obligations does not produce that kind of gratitude. Even preaching an inspiring sermon that makes good behaviors attractive does not produce that kind of gratitude as a response to God. Preaching the glorious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as the answer to all your faithlessness and sin, as the redemption of all your life with God, as your only salvation, that produces overflowing gratitude. The gospel we proclaim, the gospel that is at the heart of a Reformation church, should strike you always as the most wonderful thing you've ever heard. That's why I always appreciate Berta's comments after, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. (laughs) She loves the gospel. She responds to it well. That the holy God would come to be with you in Jesus, that he would forgive your sins and open his life up to you and pour his spirit into you so that you can relate to God through Jesus Christ every moment of your life. It's the most amazing thing we've ever heard. If bitterness is common in your life, if grumbling and complaining is common in your life, maybe you haven't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that makes you abound in thanksgiving instead. Disappointment, dissatisfaction, frustration, these things are nowhere near the kind of response the gospel is meant to produce in you. If you're filled with anxiety and fear and worry all the time, you can instead be filled with gratitude to overflowing if you receive Christ Jesus the Lord and walk in him in the same way, by faith. So Karl Barth here says that the the only answer to charis, which is grace, is eucharistia, which is gratitude. The only answer to grace is gratitude. Grace and gratitude belong together like heaven and earth. Grace evokes gratitude like the voice and echo. Gratitude follows grace like thunder lightning. So the psalmist says in Psalm 50, The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me, glorifies God. If you don't really know your need for Jesus, if you think you're handling life pretty well on your own, if you rely on your own competence or goodness to feel just good about yourself, your relationship with God, if you boast in your own works, your own achievements, or if you desperately wish that it could work that way, that you could boast in your own works, you're kind of bummed out that it doesn't work that way, you wish that you could be good enough to justify yourself even before God, then you're living a life of self-glorification. But if Jesus is central to your life with God, if believing the good news about him characterizes your walk with God, then you will abound in thanksgiving to the glory of God alone, soli Deo Gloria. Those who trust the authority of the scriptures, who believe that Jesus is the only way to live with God at any and every moment, 
uh, who find rest in his amazing gift of participation in his relationship with the Father, they will glorify the God of grace who fills their hearts with gratitude. So we'll close with Psalm 105. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord and his strength. Seek his presence continually. Amen. Let's pray. Father, in all things, we always need to trust you. Whatever it is we're doing, that needs to be the heart of our life with you, to trust who you are and what you've done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we pray that you'd help us to believe that you are trustworthy at every moment, whatever it is we face as we walk through life in Christ. Lord Jesus, you are the author of our faith. You're the perfecter of our faith. Your life has always been characterized by faith, by trust in your Father. And you've opened your life of faith up to us through your Spirit. Holy Spirit, awaken in us the faith of the Lord Jesus himself. Make his life to come alive in us as you keep us looking to him. Grant that the exuberant gratitude of believing your grace would characterize our life together with you in this church to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.